Okay, if you would, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, if you have a Bible. Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. I'll be reading Luke 19, 28 through 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying the colt? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as He rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As He was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now, they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Blessed be the reading God's holy word. And so, Father, I ask that you bless these words in the Gospel of Luke, these historical happenings, and these very words, Lord Jesus, that you spoke within days of your execution for us. May you, Holy Father, by your Spirit, grant me the grace to unfold this text accurately and give us all ears to hear and eyes to recognize this visitation of salvation through Jesus Christ. Amen. This entry into Jerusalem that we just read, took place during Passover week in A.D. 33. Jesus entered Jerusalem. And this same man will, in the future, again set foot on the Mount of Olives. He will again visit Jerusalem. And that second time will be very different than what we read this morning. And the time between those two comings that we live in now is a time of salvation. Because the way He will come back the second time all the more will make it shocking of what the Gospel of Jesus Christ is. That's why gospel means good 
news. Let's flash forward to a moment and look at his next triumphal entry to earth. This is how it's put in the book of Revelation. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness He judges and makes war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That day, it'll be too late for anybody to switch their allegiance to King Jesus. But not today. Let's look at His first coming, which makes today a day of salvation possible. Start with verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. And when He had said these things, He was in Jericho, about 18 miles away from Jerusalem. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, when He drew near to Bethphage and Bethany. Stop. In our journey through Luke, now, Jesus has finally arrived at the end of a nine-month journey, zigzagging through Galilee and Samaria and Perea and Judea. He's preached in at least 35 different localities and healed and did miracles in them in this nine-month journey, going all the way back to Luke chapter 9 when he started to this destination. And now his arrival at the gates of Jerusalem coincide purposefully and sovereignly right before Passover. His fan base has been growing larger and larger. He recently raised Lazarus from the dead just a few miles outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. News of that had been spreading through Judea and into Jerusalem. And so now there is a huge national tension brewing in the central city of the Jews. Will this Jesus, preacher, healer guy, come to Jerusalem and attempt to reestablish the throne of David. Declare himself king and get rid of our enemies. And what will the Roman authorities do? This is what's brewing in so many of the people, even of those praising Him in this text. But Jesus, knowing that His torturous execution is only five or six days away, He does something now that is unprecedented for Him to do. Throughout his ministry of the last three years, whenever disciples or crowds or the peoples wanted to crown him king, he would disappear and not let such a thing happen. But today, in this text, Jesus is orchestrating it to happen. He is boldly now on this day, declaring, I am the King. 
I am the Son of David who was promised. I am the Messiah. And Jesus' coronation that we see in our text, it sets up a tension that is happening in Judea, in Jerusalem, in 33 A.D. here. First is this, because Jesus is declaring, I'm He, I'm the One, I'm the Ruler of Israel, the Son of David. But on the other hand, there is a great misunderstanding amongst the masses of His fellow Jews of what that means right now. There's this massive misunderstanding that He's the King. He's going to come into Jerusalem with mighty supernatural powers, take the throne and free Israel from its enemies, from evil, from Rome. But it was not going to happen that way. Jesus indeed was going to take the throne, but He was going to do it through voluntary suffering and death in order to be the Savior and the King of a redeemed people. Just for a moment, we'll flash forward to just a quick seven weeks from this day. Seven weeks in the future, Peter, will be preaching in Jerusalem saying this, this Jesus whom you killed, God raised up. And of that we are witnesses being therefore exalted to the right hand of God. Or later, Jesus will have His Apostle Paul write in 1 Corinthians 15, He, Jesus, after being raised and ascended to the Father, must reign as King until He has put all His enemies under His feet. So, as we look at our text this morning, that's where it's all headed. Verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as He told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And here He is. He's getting close. Bethany. Now Bethphage. Right before Him is the Mount of Olives. They're going to start to ascend. He says, Guys, come here. Go into the town right before it's here and bring me this little donkey. Why? Why does Jesus want them to go get a donkey? Why does He want to sit on it and ride and parade up to Jerusalem on a donkey? I think the first part of the answer to that question is this. He's sovereign. His Father is sovereign. He is orchestrating everything. You will find a colt at this place. No one's ever sat on it. Grab it. Tell them. They'll let you have it. Bring it to me. Part B of the answer is that 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah foretold that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9, quote, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous 
And having salvation, is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's why he wants to ride on a donkey. Jesus is blatantly, consciously identifying himself as the Messiah. The choice of a donkey identifies him with the kings in the royal line of David because the donkey was regarded as a royal animal before David and including David. But then after David, the Hebrew kings switched to the horse. And a donkey was deemed undignified for the majesty of a king. And so Jesus is purposefully demonstrating his humility. The humility that Zechariah prophesied. Humble and mounted on a donkey. And so Jesus, he rides up on a donkey in order to show he is the promised son of David, the king, the ruler, the Messiah of Zechariah 9. But he's not the kind the people were expecting. That's what he's showing. He is affirming, yes, I am the king of Zechariah 9, as he says there in Zechariah 9, behold your king. But I am lowly and gentle in this first coming to save you this time. I'm not coming on a white horse with a sword to slay the nations. Not coming to destroy you, Jerusalem, my Jewish people, all the tribes and tongues of the nation. I'm coming to save. Today still remains the day of salvation. Read on. Verse 35, And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks, outer garments, on the colt, making like a saddle for Him, they set Jesus on it. And as He rode along, they pulled out the red carpet of a king. But that was their way. They spread their cloaks on the road. He's riding up. He's taking his last couple miles with a big parade of crowds. Now, backdrop. Jesus knows this. What has been happening already in Jerusalem with the chief priest in the Sanhedrin? We know this from John's Gospel. They have been sending out word with the command, if anybody knows where this Jesus character is, you must report it to us so we can arrest him. Jesus knows this. And so what does he do? He allows the crowd to grow larger. He gets these two guys to get the donkey. He allows them to put him on it and to be carried up into Jerusalem on it while the crowds are publicly praising and declaring him the king that was promised. Royalty. That's what he does. And this infuriated the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And it led to his arrest and to his execution within the week. Verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of His disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Because Jesus, over the last couple of years, 
throughout Galilee and Samaria and Perea and Judea. He had been making a name for himself with his healings and with his miracles and with his teaching and with his preaching. He had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead with a public audience. And it's been spreading. He had fed 5,000 with a few loaves and a few fish. He had spoken to a storm. And it obeyed Him. These are, they're praising Him. They know His disciples. Nothing could stop Him. As He goes into Jerusalem, He could speak a word and Pilate would be dead. And the Romans would be scattered. Jesus, and they're not wrong in this, He's in complete sovereign control with the Godhead of everything. And so, Jesus in His direction from the Sovereign Godhead says, go get me this donkey. Oh, it's there. <laughs> if He says it, it'll happen. And so the people, as He's riding along, cry out in verse 38 saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're quoting Psalm 118. Let me just get a taste of what's happening here. I'm going to quote from the commentator, Kent Hughes. He writes about these words of praise from the crowd that Jesus is not hushing down now. Quote, in addition to praising God for all the miracles they had seen, the people kept repeating, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a line from the Hillel Psalms, Psalms 113-118, which were chanted at the end of the Passover supper and at the Feast of Tabernacles. This particular line from Psalm 118, verse 26, had been changed and appropriated in the culture of the Jews as they would travel to Jerusalem for these festivals, changed to be a greeting to one another. Steve, blessed is he who comes to Jerusalem in the name of the Lord. That's what they did. Okay, I read on. It, in the psalm, says... Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a beatitude in its original addressed to the king as he approached the temple. This implicit kingly reference to Psalm 118 became explicit in Christ's triumphal entrance as the crowd modified it and shouted, blessed is, not He, but blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, the language of their praise is unambiguously messianic. The promised Son of David, the King, of Israel. And when the Pharisees hear it, fuming, make the what Jesus, the you know, rabbi, teacher, come on, the praising you is king and ruler of Israel. You've got to stop this. And he says, and I think loudly for all to hear. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones, rocks, would cry out. I don't know what else that could mean other than this man. Remember how Luke starts? An angel comes to Mary. That baby who grew up, we saw him at age 12. 
He was a carpenter throughout his young adulthood into his 30s. And now here he is in his mid-30s saying, I will be praised one way or another. If there's no one else to praise me but rocks, they will. The entire universe was created to praise Jesus. And if people don't, God in His sovereignty will make inanimate objects to praise Him. What we see here in what we call in church history the triumphal entry. And this is where we're at in Luke. This is not Palm Sunday. We're in September. But what we do see here is He's sovereign. He is in control of everything. Total. Don't you know Jesus? Pilate will say in a few days, I have power to kill you or let you live. You know what Jesus said that? No, you don't. You don't have any power. The only thing you could do is what my Father in His sovereignty allows you to do. He is sovereign. And then we read on. Verse 41. And when He drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, and would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so now he's gone up to the Mount of Olives, they're going over it. They now have descended down into the valley and now on the ascent back up into Jerusalem. Again, the city of Jerusalem comes into sight and Jesus stops and He... How do I want to say it? He, he wailed. He felt... And he cried because, I'm going to do this slowly, why? Because he knows what is to transpire. That's why he cries. He knows that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were going to prevail and that the people, many of these praising him now, are fickle. And together with the leadership, we'll have him arrested and spit on and slugged and crucified. And he knows that 37 years later, God's judgment will fall on this city of Jerusalem. And the tool that God will use is the Roman general Titus. The temple will be utterly destroyed to the ground. The gates will be devastated. Thousands of Jews will be killed. And those remaining alive will be driven from the city. He foretells it 37 years in advance. Jesus knows this. He feels these realities and truths. And He feels the sadness of His people rejecting God's salvation. That's what He means by peace. <laughs> Only if you knew what makes for peace with God. To be reconciled and you don't. He feels it so deeply. 
that he didn't just shed a tear. He wailed loudly. He sobbed. That's what this term, the Greek word, klio, means. It is a much stronger word than the one John uses when Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. This means a loud cry of agony. Now then, okay, here you go. You see the city. You know, you know what's going to happen in 37 years. You know what's going to happen this week. You know your destiny and you've come and you willingly lay down your life. Why, Jesus, will you feel the horror and the pain of it and cry? Here's the Bible answer. Because God, because Christ, they do not delight in the pain and the destruction of judgment. They delight in mercy far above it. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and be saved and receive His mercy. Exodus 34 says God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and mercy towards sinners. And so, you know what? As Paul lets us know in Romans 8, God didn't spare His own Son because of that, but He delivered Him up for us. He gave Him to us. He has Him on a donkey this day in order to be slaughtered within the week, in order to be the substitution where His holy wrath would be poured out so that anybody who would ever receive Him as their Savior will receive joy of God's mercy. But, this utterly merciful God is also a holy God. He is perfectly righteous, perfectly just. He is therefore the God who in Christ's death or apart from Christ's death, he must set his holy wrath in judgment against sinners. One way or the other. His day of grace is not forever. And in this text, Jerusalem and its window of opportunity is closing. And a terrible judgment was approaching. So he cried. Would that you, even you, had known on this day Jerusalem, the things that make for peace with God. But now they are hidden from your sight. And then he goes on to predict the judgment. And this judgment, he predicts, is not new in Jesus' ministry. We have, we have heard him say these things throughout his ministry, alluding to Jerusalem and its sin and its rejection and thus its impending judgment that is coming. And even during this last journey to Jerusalem in the last nine months up to this day, he said back in chapter 13, quote, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following because it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing Behold, your house is forsaken. 
And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, what we have now in our text is Jesus is grieving deeply over the oracle of doom that he's speaking. The oracle over Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish and cultural and religious life, because they have missed the boat. They have missed the nature of the times, which held out to them the potential for redemption, for peace with God. Just, just hear the text again. I know it's a third time. I just want to let the words sink in of our Lord. And hear His heart as it is broken. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. If you know what happened in A.D. 70 with the Roman government under Titus, this is exactly what happened. The siege was long. It took a long time. Barricades. The city was surrounded. But when they finally broke through, what Jesus says here happened to the T. They will hem you in on every side and there's no escaping. And they will tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So, so I, this is what I hear him say. Jerusalem, the center, my, my fellow non-Gentile, thus Jewish people, If you only saw, if you only knew, but you don't. He's saying this, I would have been pleased if you had known the things that make for peace with God and embraced them. But they didn't. And in contrast, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple and of the city, which happens in A.D. 70. Just for a moment, let me make this comment. What is true of the nation of Israel in AD 33 during Passover week that we see here can be true of individuals in our day. You could miss the time of God's gracious visitation. Oh, the mercy and the grace as Paul will write later, to, to be the people, God's chosen people, the Jewish people to whom He gave the Word of God. And there is no other Word of God written, but the one that came through the Jews and they had the book. It is a privilege to be set apart that way. And it is a privilege to be listening to this sermon this morning or any Sunday morning in churches. That privilege, don't take for granted. Oh, to be one of you children or teenagers raised up in covenant families is a massive grace of God. And so as the New Testament theme goes, it says this to us. Today is the day 
of salvation. Do not harden your hearts as Jerusalem did in AD 33 during Passover week. Because the time is coming when it will be too late. Jesus says Jerusalem will be destroyed. Why? Because you did not know the time of being visited by God. What does that mean? It means because you didn't know the time and see it where God's visiting you in such a way that your hearts would respond and receive it. That's what it means. Jesus knows that the nation has decided predominantly about Him. And thus His words. And thus His tears. And the loss is Israel's. And Jesus will be exalted and vindicated by God within the week. So, let me spend the rest of our time then. What we see here, contemplating, how do we take it? Let me, let me form the question this way. What do we do with the seeming, an emphasis on the word seeming, what do we do with the seeming contradiction if you're paying attention to what we see in the text. What I mean is this. If God is sovereign over everything, cults, Pilate, as we will see later, if God is in sovereign, kingly, absolute control, and what He wills in that way will happen, if that's true about God, here's the one hand, how do you put that up against Jesus cried over what transpired under God's sovereignty? Am I making sense yet? If God is sovereign, go get the colt. And we've seen throughout Jesus' life, and we will see later, and we will see in Paul where the Holy Spirit through him lets us know that Israel's hardening was God's sovereign purpose. How do you hold that, Jesus, and genuinely cry at it? That's what we see in the text. Because here's, what, here's a way to go at it. No, if Jesus is genuine, he cried, he felt it, he was just so disappointed at the rejection of Israel. And thus, I deny God's sovereignty. The argument will go something like, after all, Jesus cried, he wailed, he grieved. Why did he grieve? Because, here's how the argument will go, his design for Israel to be saved by the Messiah is not coming to pass. He, he would not cry. He would rejoice. He would delight in their salvation, but they are stiff-arming him. And they're going to arrest him. And they're going to kill him. And therefore, conclusion, God's will does not come to pass. That's why he cries. God's will does not come to pass because of the will of men that prevented it in their hardness of heart. But I don't think that position is biblical in understanding this tension. I don't think it works. Let me say it this way. And what we see in our text and riding on a donkey and the people praising Him and Jesus is weeping, look, this was not some 
well-intentioned, first-century Jewish rabbi reformer who ended up tragically getting murdered because he really messed up in his choice of a particular follower who betrays him. That's not this Jesus. He came into the world, took to his person genuine humanity for the bottom line purpose to be slaughtered in exactly the way he will on the cross. As he said in Mark, I have come to lay down my life for the sheep. I have come to give my life as a ransom. When John, he says, nobody takes my life. That's what he's saying to Pilate later. You're not taking it. No one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. See, in the text, that's why we hear things like, if they stop praising, these inanimate objects will praise me. He is in sovereign control. So, all the rejection and the scheming and the murder of Jesus, all of that together is not a failure of Jesus' plan of the Father's plan, of the Holy Spirit's plan, of Almighty God's plan. Those things that will transpire now in this next week in Luke, year, are the fulfillment of God's plan. You remember what Jesus said on this journey up to Jerusalem back in chapter 18. And taking the twelve, he said to them, Look, we're going up to Jerusalem, guys. And everything that is written about the Son of Man, means himself, everything that's written by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So, this is where our contemplation should go. The enemies of Jesus. The betrayal. The unbelief. The blind eyes. The hardness of heart. The mock trial of the Sanhedrin that night. The whips the spit, the punches, and the murder. None of that, none of it was a surprise to Jesus. This is probably what it means in verse 42 of our text this morning. Where Jesus says, But now, these things that make for peace and salvation, passive verb, Meaning they didn't do this part right here in the way he constructs the sentence. Now they are hidden from your eyes. Or like he said back in Luke 8, verse 10. Disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So look, none of the hardness of heart and sinful acts against Christ were ultimately ever hindering or coming against God's, I'm going to be very careful here, ever coming against God's sovereign will. Oh, they came against His revealed will. not His sovereign will. This is how Peter, John, and James, and Jesus' mother, and others prayed in the early church in Acts 4. Quote, 
For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Who was gathered together against him? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. God is in absolute, total control of all things. That's what we ought to mean when we say God is sovereign. And His salvation of sinners is sovereign mercy. Paul writes, quoting God in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul says, So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay. Now, so I'm closing now in the next eight minutes. This is what I want to say to us. Depending on where you're at, if you're one, so let me just say it this way, those of us who have come, and a lot of times these are journeys within the Christian life that some people may never make, or other of us make it down the road long after new birth, but if you have come in your life to see the truth that God is sovereign over all things. Got that? Like I just, I just did what I just did. Okay. Now, here, here, here's the part that I don't want to peer it. That means, hold this now. You must also see that He, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and demonstrated, you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, demonstrated in His humanity on that day. You must see, knowing that, not denying His sovereignty, that He cries. And He grieves over the hard hearts of Jerusalem and the subsequent judgment, even as those things fulfill His sovereign plan. That's a fight in the Christian life. So here's what I propose for every Bible-centered Christian. First, if you say, hey man, He's sovereign. Amen. I know, yes, Judas sinned. Yes. The Sanhedrin sinned. Pilate sinned. And it killed Jesus. And it was God's sovereign plan. And you say, yes. Okay, that's good. 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 Now I want to say this. Don't draw unbiblical conclusions from that. Don't make unbiblical judgments about God because of that. Because maybe God is a lot bigger and much more complex than you can get your mind around. So what I mean, say it this way then. Don't deny God's sovereignty because of His tears. And don't Deny God's broken heart over sin and rebellion and lostness. Don't deny God's tears. Don't deny Jesus' tears because of God's sovereignty. Say it this way. I'm going to be a little theologically technical. So, use the word will. And I'm going to use it in two different ways, and that's why you're going to hear a modifier with it. Because to read the Bible and want to get out of it in its context, what it's saying, and put it together, I don't know any other way to talk about God than this. That God, in a way that we finite creatures cannot imagine, can will something on one level 
and for His eternal purposes in a way that He, that he doesn't will it to happen in another way. So, say it this way then. God's will of decree or His sovereign will. Will of decree meaning this. When God, anything that is within God's will where He decrees it. For, let me give you an example. Opening to the Bible. God says, let there be light. It is impossible for that not to happen. Anything God decrees, meaning God in His godness says, this will be, and it will transpire this way. It cannot not happen. That's what we mean by His will of decree. Anything He decrees will come to pass. Okay? On the other hand, God's revealed will that He reveals to us creatures. And it really is His revealed will on a different level than His will of decree. For instance, it, it's, we can call it this way. His will of command. That can be resisted. It can be hindered. Human beings could prevent it by their will. For instance, God's will of command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not covet. Repent and believe this message of Jesus. That's all God's will of command. People come against that will of God all the time. And when we people do come against God's revealed will, it grieves Him. The heart of God is huge and complex. God, no, this is getting, we're almost there. No other way I, I can understand the God of the Bible the way He reveals Himself other than to, to, to say it this way. God is able to be grieved genuinely over sin. Let's get real specific. Let's watch this last week, which is going to be unfolding in Luke. God genuinely grieves over the sin of Judas's betrayal and over the sin of the Sanhedrin and over the sin of Pilate and over all the conspiring sin that put him on a cross. God genuinely grieves over the human sin that caused that to happen while at the same time He is ordaining that the death of Jesus take place for higher and greater eternal God-glorifying purposes that bring more joy to the eternal Godhead than if He did not ordain that things took place that way. Okay. It's the best I got there. So now, that's what I want to say to us for our lives. Don't ever think that in the midst of your own pain and tears for yourself or even your pain and tears for other loved ones or even those you don't know as you watch news accounts of 200,000 people being wiped out in a tsunami or the grief as some of us are dealing with parents and their baby and cancer and surgery and chemotherapy. Don't ever think that the pain and the depth that you feel, believer, is more true or deeper than the way the Father or Jesus or the Holy Spirit feels the depth of the pain of us human beings down here. 
never let the truth of God's sovereignty be a sinful excuse to not grieve or cry or feel the pain of others. Our response to God's hidden will, another way to say it, His sovereign will, which is unfolding all around us and in our lives constantly, and His sovereign will unfolding around us, we find out creates pain and suffering down here during this time. Our response to God's sovereignty as it unfolds that way is to weep with those who weep. And it is to not ever flippantly rejoice at the pain of God's sovereign judgment over Jerusalem or that person in your life or anything else. It is to feel, to cry. It is to, to, because of Christ, be angry. It's sin. Through all those emotions of pain. Don't let me just feel and be compassionate. Move and act. In fact, we should be about, especially those of us who believe and understand God's sovereignty, about praying. Help me feel deeper and more truly. Help me feel the pain of others. And thus, by Your power, help me move and act out in remedying and helping and encouraging and comforting those who are in pain. The reason that Jesus cried here is because He felt deeply. And He not only felt, but He moved towards self-denial and laying down His life to save sinners deserving of God's judgment. So let us go on in our prayer lives, because if we don't pray, it's not going to happen to any degree. But go on being awed and rest in God's sovereignty over all things. And let us feel and let us cry at the outworkings of His sovereignty as He moved and as we move to loving deeds. Just use our great chief of our salvation as the example. He's on the donkey, because I want this to help us. He's on the donkey, and more than any human being, the only sinless human being, and thus more than any human being who ever lived, He had trust in the absolute sovereign outworkings of His Father. In everything that was to transpire. And it didn't prevent Him from bawling His head off over the destruction of sinners that's coming and, and over the grief that rejecting the Savior produced in his heart. I'm going to pray in a second. As we sing, we will be passing out the communion elements. Hold the cup, hold the bread, wait, we'll pray over them together. But this is only for those of you who know I'm a Christian and I have been baptized as a Christian. If you haven't, just let the cup and the, and the plate pass you. Father, so I, I beg that you continue in your sovereign grace to melt our hard hearts and to receive your word through Christ and Luke implanted deep within the flesh of our heart. Especially now as we approach your table, Lord Jesus, who has purchased 
such a glorious salvation out of darkness and blindness into the light, to love and to worship the glory of your holy name.